All right, it is our State of the State segment here on Goober 95.1, presented by our friends at United Producers. And, hey, four months in the making, we finally got him in studio, Congressman <laughs> Brett Guthrie. Thank you very much. We've had a long session in Washington in the last few months, so yes. Yeah, and lots going on in the news. Let's uh, let's. Let's go start talking. Let's start talking about some things you've been working on and robocalls. Yes, robocalls. I just got set up on one the other day. I think my phone rang like 12 times in a row from somebody from. Your phone did? My phone did. Somebody from Hanson, Kentucky, which uh, I know some people in Hanson, but none of them were in my phone and nobody, let, they didn't leave a message. So, uh, right. so I figured it was a robocall, so I blocked them. But we did pass to the Senate. Hopefully the Senate will take it up. Uh, the problem with, with it, there, there are no call lists. I've had people. The number one issue people have talked to me about is mm-hmm. when I'm out is that all the calls are getting on their cell phones, personal phones, moving forward. And, and so what, uh, what's happening, and most of it's coming from overseas. Yeah. So even though it's already illegal to make these robocalls or these phone calls, uh, it's hard to enforce something when they're coming from Russia, from India, and, and other, China, or other places such as that. But there is technology. So if somebody takes a number from Hanson, Kentucky, yeah. and uses it to call my phone— then they're not just calling my phone. They're usually calling thousands of phones at a time. It's all computerized. It's, you know, you call a thousand hoping to get a handful that'll answer and a handful that will uh, give you the credit card information or whatever. So let me say, don't ever give any information to anybody. Yeah. I mean, if the IRS is calling you to say you haven't paid your taxes, hang up and either call our office or call the IRS or somebody. Don't, don't give it over the phone. That's what they try to do. But so what we're mandating is that AT&T or the, or the people who offer Verizon that offer phone services have to put technology on their phone that you can opt in. Because if I had opted in and this was a legitimate call, it might have been blocked. But you right. opt in, and it and it basically detects. They can they can detect if it's a robocall. So if one number is calling, you know, a thousand people, not many people who are making personal calls are going to call a thousand people in a millisecond. Right. So that it detects that, and it you can you can opt in. So what it mandates is that phone services have to offer that service to you. Right. Because, you know, my thing is, you know, I don't answer a phone if it's not in my phone. I don't answer a number if it's not I'm already in my way. phone. I don't know who they are. Yeah. But you have a lot of people who are in business. You know, I have a friend of mine from Owensboro that, that calls. He says, you know, he's got some kind of a flooring business type type business. And he says, you know, I don't know if somebody gets my number off a sign, calls me. I've got to answer every phone call. Right. And so this, so if one person's calling him, it'll go through. But if he signs up for this service, it'll be mandated. And if it's just somebody generating a robocall, right. he won't receive it. So that's, that's one thing. And, and then we did enhance the penalties. So if you can catch somebody doing it, like I said, it's very, it's very difficult to prosecute somebody operating a computer out of Russia. Right. But we are going to up the penalties as well. I've even had an instance where I've had somebody call me with my own phone number. Well, I've had people I, call me back. Well, I've had people... I've never had a phone call from my own phone number, right. but I've had my phone number taken because I've had people return a phone call. So I just got a phone call from you, and I said I didn't call. So I had several at a time, so somebody must have taken my number oh, and used man. a robocall. It's such a nightmare because, like, you know, you can filter spam emails. You can filter – you can even filter text messages now. And your right. like, my phone will tell me this could be potentially spam. It'll notify me. How in the world have we not had the technology developed yet – to, to filter these phone calls. Well, the thing is, people don't a lot of times want to make sure they get their phone calls because somebody could be legitimately calling them from a number they don't have. And right. so it's hard. So if you get a text message or an email, you can read it and say, oh, this is something I'm not going to answer because it's probably not or not respond to. But when it's a phone call, I mean, you can't, it doesn't say, hey, this, you don't get a text message that you're receiving a phone call. This could be false. 
Right. So it, it's more difficult to do it that way. But so uh, we're going to make the service available to people. I think the Senate hopefully will take this up in the in the fall and then have this signed into law by the president. And the Stopping Bad Robocalls Act has passed in the House. It has passed the House and it's into the Senate. So how does it look to how does it look now in the senate well i think that something will move forward it's it's bipartisan okay you know most of the things that happen in dc like this i are are bipartisan the things that you see on the cable news at night or the bigger issues a lot of it that you see are are dealing with the russian investigation and those types of things that and the Mueller report but you know the day-to-day things like the nuisance things that people won't dealt with by uh by congress or or dealt with in a bipartisan way so I, i feel pretty Strong. The thing with the Senate, any one senator can hold anything up, right. and so you never know what's going to happen when it gets to the Senate. It takes uh, the, the 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 issue with the Senate and Senator McConnell will tell you they have two calendars. One they have the legislative calendar, which this would be part of. The other is the executive calendar. Mm-hmm. So about everybody that's a deputy secretary and above, every commission, every judge, every justice has to go through Senate debate. And currently, Chuck Schumer's decided that every single one of them is going to take the full time on the floor. Because uh, one senator can object, and then it goes to you got to get sixty votes. So it takes pretty much a week to do anything in the Senate. It's forty hours of yeah. I think it's thirty hours of guaranteed debate, plus guaranteed other things. Guaranteed debate on any issue, unless the senators don't object. So if there's a deputy secretary of agriculture for personnel, and Chuck Schumer decides he wants to gum up the Senate, he has the opportunity to do that, and that's what's happened. And so what usually happens because they're trying to block the judges, the president. Trump has the right to appoint, and the Senate should have an up or down vote. Yeah. So they kind of gum everything up in the Senate. So what happens is right before a break, so Senator McConnell will say, we're going to stay through August and do these, or we can sit down and agree to approve, approve them. And that's usually what happens. But, right. you know, between uh, Memorial Day and, and currently the current uh, time we're home working, uh, President, um, I mean, um, Chuck Schumer can block the Senate, and the Senate gets kind of caught, caught up in that, and that's unfortunate. That and just because you're not that. in session doesn't mean you're not working. You're back here. Oh, no, we're, we're out. Most people are out and about right. going. I uh, just talked with a friend of mine from upstate New York about some issues that, that he was interested in and so that he was talking about. So, yes, I was driving over here. So we're home. We're home. We're, you know, that's what you hear on the cable news. Congress isn't in session. How many days we're actually in Washington? I think it's very valuable. We're having roundtables with different groups. We're going to meet with physicians. Uh, about insurance, we're going to meet with drug pricing, we're going to meet with hospitals. We just had a, a roundtable with veterans about veteran suicide. suicide. Yeah. Uh, and the VA came and made a presentation to people with veteran, veterans group about how to spot suicide, how to try to prevent it, how to help uh, this tragic thing that's going on with, with a lot of our veterans. And so these are things that we do when we're home. Another crisis affecting states like Kentucky and and throughout the nation is the fentanyl trade, illegal fentanyl trade. Yes, yes, and uh, and it's it's one of the many factors to the opioid crisis. Opioid, how am I saying that right? <laughs> opioid, opioid crisis, the opioid crisis right now nationwide, but it's had an effect here in Kentucky too. So tell us about what you're doing to work on that. Well, it has a has had a big effect, and we passed a couple of bills just recently. One, one, two things. One is you have to look at people who are addicted to opioids. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot either made bad decisions or they, a lot of people were – there's a lot of instances of opioid addiction. Opi- I'm having a trouble saying that. Opioid <laughs> addiction. Rub it off on you. <laughs> yeah, you rubbed off on me. Opioid addiction that were getting legitimate pain uh, and, yeah. and legitimate pain issues. And I've torn ACL playing. There's a, a case on a specific one of a soccer player, teenager, honor student, th- all the kinds of things, tore an ACL playing soccer, ended up – um, passing away, overdosing, yeah. uh, 
and and so what we're trying to do one is that, or people just made bad decisions and got addicted to it. I mean, that those are things people are susceptible to it. And so one, you don't treat every addict as a criminal. We try to interdict. You know, some people have criminal behavior because they're addicts. If you if you fix the addiction, you fix the criminal behavior. Some people are just criminals, and but most people that as we've looked in it that are selling opioids at at other than a one or two pills in order to support their personal habit. Right. The people that are true, what we would call pushers, or or truly uh, leading the opioid or the the fentanyl trade, aren't addicted to it because mm-hmm. most there. The, if you read a book called Dreamland, Tommy Loving, who's the head of our local drug task force, who uh, is spends a lot of time on this, gave a book to me read, and and there was a Mexican cartel that was shipping opioids into the United States. And their rule was you couldn't take them because if because they didn't want you to be foggy or or right. you know it, you you're there trading. You know, that, that's your bill. They're that smart too. <laughs> they're they oh it's a very intelligent group yeah. of people doing yeah. this and and we're trying to stay ahead of them. I actually just went through a I'm so I'm on the committee. We're going to be looking at foreign drug inspections coming to the United States. So I was really at, at a meet at a at a place where mail comes in to the United mm-hmm. States at JFK Airport in New York City. And looking at just the false drugs that come in. So a lot of people say, well, I can get drugs cheaper if I buy it over the Internet. I buy from a foreign country. And they were just showing me examples. Don't ever do that because maybe you're going to get something cheaper that you could buy in the United States. But the odds are you're going to get something that's not been inspected. It's not right. It's not correct. It's counterfeit. Some of it's just uh, essentially you could take a Tic Tac and have just as much effect if you're if you're buying some of the, these drugs right. coming in. But while I was there, it was interesting, and a lot of it was in children's toys. For some reason, they used that. Uh, there was a Lego set that came in. They go, oh, this looks suspicious. As they x-ray, opened it up, and there was ecstasy all in these Lego blocks. And so oh now Lord. that was going to go to a um, <laughs> that was going to go to a person's home, and they were going to do a controlled delivery and, and see where it leads to. But think if those toys would end up in the children's hands. I mean, it, 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 these people take no prisoners. They are, uh, and and those are the criminals that we need to pursue. What if that so was mistakenly delivered somewhere else to somewhere, or some the person wasn't receiving it that was there, and a kid got into it. Yeah. It was it was, a, it was substantial, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars worth of ecstasy in this uh, Lego set. And I've seen it. it. I personally saw them open it up, and it was in there. I wish I'd had time to go in the controlled delivery with them. I'd love to see where it was. I knew where it was going, yeah. uh, somewhere in the metro New York area, but I, didn't, I would love to have seen where the next step in that. But. Yeah. Uh, another hot uh, drug issue is the insulin prices, and that's something you've been looking to. Yeah, we're looking, looking at drug well. prices in general. We're looking at insulin as a specific um, problem that we have to deal with. Insulin has gone up about three times in price over the last uh, four, three or four years. Yeah. And. We're tr- there's a huge supply ch- so the whole medical the whole healthcare industry has several steps in the supply chain one through insurance so insulin's made by a pharmacy manufacturer it's negotiated by a pharmacy benefit manager mm-hmm. it's paid for by a health insurance plan sent to a pharmacy where the the customer goes to the pharmacy and has copays deductibles and and so forth and so what's happening is the drug companies or the insurance companies through their PBMs are negotiating rebates from the drug companies. So if you buy it through your health insurance, it's actually about the same price it's been, but the retail price keeps going up so you can get bigger right. discounts. So if you're just going to go pay cash or you're already in your deductible or co-pays or you have these high deductible plans, it costs you more money and, it, and insulin hasn't changed. Yeah. So we're really looking at insulin. We're trying to figure out what public policy uh, that needs to move forward. Cause a lot of times when you put 
say, price controls mm-hmm. or other type. You can't charge more than X, Y, or Z. We're seeing in, in very low-priced drugs, not necessarily price control drugs, but drugs that have gone generic, we're seeing shortages where they're having to put off surgeries, where I have a lot of people in the ambulance world, the uh, EMS people, um, coming to me and say, we can't get just basic drugs to have on our ambulance that we need because there's shortages of it. So you can do things to say, hey, we're going to hold the price down, but then you have unintended consequences. So we're being deliberate right. about it, trying to form the right policy. But the one thing that, that we have to be careful of as we move forward, there are blockbuster drugs coming out as well. And those are, so insulin is one that has been around for 100 years. The insulin that people use today has been around since the 1990s. Right. So there's really no... Uh, big research going into it that has to be paid for that gives a reason for these prices to be going up. Right. And, and so there's really three categories. There's that one we're trying to get to the right public policy to. There's others like EpiPen. Yeah. Which is just generic. EpiPen essentially generic. A lot of schools mandate that EpiPen is is available because kids yeah. have nut allergies at, at the school. You said Blockbuster, though. What is that? Well, let me get the exactly? block. So that's oh, the third. Okay, let me just okay. finish with EpiPen. So you have EpiPen. And yeah. there was a hedge fund manager that says, well, if, if EpiPen's mandated in every school, I can buy the company, raise the price, and people have to have it. Right. And it's just purely uh, a profiteering moving forward. And so we're trying to put regulatory aspects on it. The other is the blockbuster drug. So some of them are drugs or medical procedures or medical devices. Mm-hmm. You know, we can cure sickle cell anemia. Stage 4 melanoma is not where it's cured now, but it certainly you can live a long time with stage 4 right. melanoma. That was a death sentence a couple of years ago, uh, hemophilia is getting to the point where it can be dealt with and cured. Mm-hmm. Sixty fibrosis, and a lot of this is through extremely expensive research. And so the question is, if we put price controls on that, where you can't charge X amount of dollars, we're not going to have the research and we're not going to have the drugs. Right. So we have to, so I'm working, um, how do we make those affordable? And so, for instance, with the hemophilia can cost, a med- so Medicaid is, is where we're working because that's government paid. So it can, can cost $100,000 a year for the state to pay and the federal government through Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Or you could spend a few hundred thousand dollars and go through, it's a bone marrow transplant, some other types of, of treatment. But a lot of insurance plans and in states says, well, why? We're, it, it, that's like a half a million dollars up front. Right. As opposed to paying $100,000 a year. So we're saying, how do you finance that? So, so an example with hemophilia, we're working with a group that says, let us take the risk. So take a hemophilia patient, what you would be paying to maintain the hemophilia, we'll agree to that payment over a five-year period. Mm-hmm. And if that person is still having to go get other treatments that cost you money, then we you don't pay us. And so the the, the pharmaceutical company would take the risk. Uh, people would get the cures. Hepatitis C now can be cured with a pill. Yeah. You know, and, and just five years ago, hepatitis C had to run its course until your liver failed. And then you got a liver transplant. Now it can be cured. With a pill, right. the pill when it first came out was a hundred grand, and the liver transplants. Way the liver transplant can be two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand yeah. dollars, and so we can cure it. It's now down to about thirty thousand because others have come onto the marketplace. So those are expensive, but there's a lot of research that go into them that we need and right. we want, and so we have to be careful how we handle that as well. Sounds like every one of the situations need a different solution too. Ab- absolutely, and that's why one size doesn't fit. Everybody says let's just like. Let's just reimport from Canada. Let's reimport from all these others. And and the truth with that is, and, and that's why people are going on the internet to buy drugs overseas, is that you the people of America subsidize the research for the world. 
Yeah. So the reason that drugs are cheaper in Canada and England is because one, but you can't get them immediately there. Kind of once they run their course here, right? And the companies have recouped their investment, then and they're about to go generic, then they go overseas and you can buy them overseas. And so um, the question is, we're not going to have those drugs if we don't pay for them. And part of what the president talks about. It's more difficult to do when, you, when you're dealing with trade. with it. You say, if you're going to send that product here and charge us for it, we're going to charge you for the products you send us. That's what the president's doing now. When they're not paying for drug prices, and you can't say, well, we're not going to send drugs to you if you don't pay, if you help share in the cost. Right. I mean, that wouldn't be moral to do, so we're not doing that. But part of the negotiations for trade, I know the president's very interested in making sure these national health insurance companies like Britain, British system – pay their fair share for drug research. Yeah. Sounds uh, very reasonable. It's reasonable. It's difficult it's to do. it's not one size fit all either. And it's not it's, simple to yeah, do. Yeah, it's very, very complicated. But it is a problem that we're trying to, and bipartisan, and bipartisan. job. <laughs> yeah, and those are the committees that I'm on. I've had a few people sometimes, we don't see me on Fox doing the Mueller report and those types of things. That's the Judiciary Committee, Intel Committee. Uh, yeah. and, and so the things that I work on every day when I'm in, in Washington, I'm on the Energy and Commerce Committee, on the Healthcare Subcommittee, mm-hmm. is trying to, do these things. Make sure we have innovative drugs, innovative healthcare procedures, innovative products. We now have an artificial pancreas. I have two nieces that have diabetes. Interesting. They're, they're on the pump. They're not on the artificial pancreas yet, but that essentially you're going to have a pancreas attached to your body. So the effects of diabetes, because over time people, typically people who are diabetic, won't have as long life because of the ups and downs of the insulin within their system. They're going to get the exact amount of insulin exactly as their body needs it due to the art. So they have sensors. The sensor tells the pump exactly when to, uh, to do the right amount of insulin at the right time, huh. which in my lifetime, I had a friend of mine that, that was diabetic as a child. When I was a child, we were children, and she would stick her finger two or three times a day, and in between, she wouldn't, would have these big swings in insulin. Now you're going to get it exactly when you need it. Regulated. Basically. Regulated, yeah. just like I do with my normal pancreas that, yeah. that works. And so uh, – People are going to have a long life with it. And That's amazing. Those are amazing things, and but they aren't cheap, and we have to make sure they're there and they're affordable for people. Another healthcare issue is medical billing. I, I've had <laughs> it. It's happened to me. Surprise billing. Um, so you've got the No Surprises Act in, in the works, right? And well, we're trying to figure out exactly how to do it and how to yeah. do it correctly and, and right. So, so what surprise billing would be, and the best example is uh, Kolaska. It's just the best example to, to use because I'm 55 now, so I'm familiar with that, so yeah. I can talk about it a little bit. But let's say you say I'm going to go to this hospital, X hospital, with this gastroenterologist, and they're both in my health insurance network. So you go to the hospital, you have you, you say it's going to cost X amount of dollars for the colonoscopy for the doctors in-network. Well, then they, they'll, whatever they test you, when they, they test you with a colonoscopy, you'll have a pathologist. You may have a radiologist if it's cancer. Mm-hmm. Different, you'll have an anesthesiologist that will give you the, I don't know, they actually put you to sleep for a colonoscopy, but they give you something that you don't they care about getting. Asleep. Yeah, they, well, you, you don't care. I've been through it. You don't care what they give you some kind of... Uh, anesthetic i'm not sure exactly what it is but you don't you wake up and when you come back to uh i don't think you ever go unconscious when you come back when you know what's going on you don't know what happened to you those that anesthesiologist at a hospital that radiologist may not be in your personal network now how is you how are you as a citizen or as a consumer who's done all your due diligence did everything in network that you had control over Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden you get a bill for a few thousand dollars from a because well your anesthesiologist was out of network 
And so your health insurance kicks it back and says, we're not paying for out-of-network prices. And so what we're forcing the hospitals, the physicians, and the insurance plans to come up with a price that doesn't surprise people. We have had instances of people going and getting to the hospital in network and then getting like a $7,000 bill from a physician that's not in the network from a different type. It's really tough in, in uh, emergency rooms because you, if you're out somewhere, and particularly if you're not home, and you have an accident, you go to an emergency room. Let's say you're driving on I-65 towards Louisville, and yeah. you have an accident, and they take you to an emergency room. Well, you're not going to choose. You're not going to sit around and say, well, don't take me there in the ambulance because they're not in my network. Right. And then you get a several-thousand-dollar bill. It, so it seems easy to fix. Like you say, well, just pay that in-network price. But then the, the hospitals and the physicians will say, well, health insurance would never negotiate with us. They'll just set the This is the in-network price, take it or leave it. And if it's always the price, right. then we'll never sit down and negotiate an actual price. So the health insurance companies gets too much power. So what the physicians and the hospitals say, well, let's have an arbitration. If a bill's $7,000 and we think it should be three, let's go to an arbitrator to try to figure it out. Well, if you're the consumer, that kind of gets Man, in your way. And, and so what that. we're trying to do is figure out what's the balance, take the consumer out of it. Right. Everybody who chooses an in-network once you walk into the door of an in-network facility, everybody in that door, need, you need to be treated like they're in-network. So would that be like, uh, maybe, I don't know if this would be similar, but it's like the, the law where no matter what hospital you go to, if you're pregnant, like you, you need to have a child mm-hmm. right? or you need services, they have to provide you those services no matter right. what. Well, emergency rooms that way. That? So that's what an emergency room physician says. You know what, I the emergency room physician would say to you, and I think it's a fair point is that I see everybody walks in the door. Right. And if I have to say, and I can't say, well, you're not in my network. I'm not at your, so you need to make a decision now. Do you want me to see you or not? They, they can't do that. They shouldn't do that. And so we need to come up with a fair way for them to be compensated. Interesting. And they said, if we only use the insurance company's number, then over time that's going to get lower and lower and lower. Because if, if insurance company says they have to take what I'm willing to pay, then they may be They'll, they'll just lower the price. Right. So there has to be some negotiation, but we want to. So that's, that's the, they always say the devil's in the details. <laughs> How do you work through what that right price really is? Right. Uh, I know, and I had a case of someone in uh, Park City who's called and had a 30 something thousand dollar air Ooh. ambulance bill. Their son was hit by a car and ambulance flew them to Louisville and all of a sudden got a 30, I think it was $33,000. I don't remember exactly. It was over 30. And he says, I'll pay it if you can show me where it costs $30,000. And, and it's in healthcare because we have third-party payer, insurance negotiations, out-of-network prices, extremely difficult payment systems. The, it, there's no transparency. Right. And so we're trying to say, does it really cost X, Y, or Z? And so part of the provision that I put for, let's get data on what it costs to fly a helicopter. So what a helicopter company will say we're not just paying for the helicopter to fly to Glasgow to Louisville. We're paying for the helicopter to be sitting there with a full crew waiting to fly to Glasgow to Louisville. And that costs money as well because they right. ha- always have to be on call. And so that's a fair point. But let's just see exactly what it is so we can come up with the right price. Indeed. So it's, it's hard to fix at the snap of your fingers or right. you end up with unintended consequences. But those are the kind of things that I get to work on every day for hopefully for, that'll make life better for the people of the second district. And it's not... Yeah. arguing with uh, Adam Schiff, you know, about what Mueller said or didn't say that day. 
because right. I'm not on those committees, but it's important to people in their everyday life. And the other side of this, and, and this is not going to be a popular thing to say, but you know, there's the consumer side, but these companies are in it to make money too. And and most people are like, well, yeah. they shouldn't make money. Well, that's that's not how this works. Yeah. Um, so you have to look at both sides. Well, if, you do, if, they're, if they don't make money, then they're not going to be in business. You're not going to have the service. Right. And so I've, I've had a, a person say to me, why should there be any profit and misery? And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, profit in, in health care. And I says, well, we are getting these. We can cure hemophilia. We can cure hepatitis right. C or it's coming. We can cure hepatitis C. We can cure uh, sickle cell anemia now. We're getting the artificial pancreas. Right. And so I'm, I'm saying my point is we're getting these breakthrough medicines. It's just unbelievable what's happening in healthcare today. Stage four melanoma is no longer a death sentence. It doesn't work for everybody, but works yeah. for a lot of people. And, and so the question you could get to, well, should there be profit in food? Well, if you, if you want to talk about that, and if we don't have profit in food, <laughs> countries have tried not having profit in food. Russia's tried it. China's yeah. tried it. And, every, and Venezuela is going through it now. And every country that's tried it, people have starved. Right. And so we have profit in food, and we probably have the cheapest food in the world. Part of profit is reinvestment. Well, it is. And we have some yeah. of the cheapest food in the world because of innovation by our farmers. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I also want to talk about uh, you're on a com- you're on the House Committee for Education and Labor, right? And you're trying to help Kentuckians find jobs and help student loan borrowers. Can you elaborate on that? Well, there's a couple of things to that. One um, with, with the student loan. So most college funding is state. So Western Kentucky University is a state supported school, right? And so that's so making college affordable. What the level of tuition? Is really set by the states. Of course, there's private schools, a lot of private schools. We have a lot of them in Kentucky. They set their prices, and people can decide whether or not they will want to pay them or not. But to make college really affordable, you know, as a state function, if the federal government all of a sudden, which there's been some debate about it, federal government just start making, paying for state colleges, then states would just be out of, I, I just don't think that's right. We have budget right. deficit already, and we can't just go in and start subsidizing colleges as well. Mm-hmm. What I want to make sure the, the bill that I have that you're referring to, I'm working with a lady out of Portland, Oregon, named Susan Suzanne Bonamici, is that people under really, I've had people tell me they didn't realize that they were going to owe as amount of money. They didn't realize that as much as they thought it was going to be grants, not loans. So mm-hmm. some people go to school with grants. So the federal government does Pell Grants. They give you money to go to school and you never have to pay that back. Most of federal support is, is subsidized loans. So the interest rate's cheaper. And the loan's cheaper, but you still have to pay it back. Right. And so people will take on, you know, several hundred thousand dollars worth of debt and not have the ability to pay it back when, when they graduate. And so we want to make sure that people are truly counseled. If they're going to take federally subsidized loans, mm-hmm. that the universities who receive that are responsible to make sure people fully understand through counseling. Indiana has done that. Yeah. As a, as a university, University of Indiana, I guess they're – they're not better than us in basketball, but certainly they've, uh, I know, they've, they've put, implemented it. And student debt's gone down about 20% yeah. by just making sure people fully understand. Because I remember when I was going to college, I went to military school, so I didn't have to take debt. But one of the things that people will tell you, you'll never get money this cheap. Maximize your student debt. Take all, have you ever heard that before? Yeah. Take all the money you can get because you'll never get it this cheap. Now, if you took that and invested it in, in, in money, in, yeah. but if you're just consuming it, whether it's cheap or not, you still have to pay it back. And, and so that's just the wrong way to go. And I think there's still some of that mentality out there. 
And we want to make sure people fully understand when you pursue this college with this specific degree that you're, and it's going to cost you X amount of dollars, make sure you know how you're going to pay it back. I remember when my dad consulted me when I was in college on whether I should take a student loan. And my dad was a math teacher for quite a long time. So he had to invest in his education. That's how he phrased it to me. He's like, son, you got to remember, you had to have some skin in the game. Right. Yeah, you're going to owe some money. This is part of the investment that you're making right. in your future. Well, people make more money yeah. with a college degree than – but the other part on ed, education and labor, there's over 700,000 skilled jobs that are unfilled in the country. Yeah. Getting people with – you don't have to have a four-year degree. You know, that's good if people can do it. And I encourage anybody that has the opportunity to do it and the ability to do it to do yeah. it because it just does show that you make more money over time if you have a four-year degree. But if you graduate or dr- – Hopefully you don't drop out of high school. <laughs> but if you only graduate from high yeah. school and those are the only skills you bring to the game, businesses just can't afford to pay people for world-class wages if they don't bring the skills to the game. Right. And Kentucky has – K-12 through education is focused on it now. Uh, every community that I represent now has easy access to community college or technical school. Yeah. We have Sky uh, – I think a Southern Kentucky Community College here, but – uh, we used to call it Bowling Green Tech. Great careers. You can have great yeah. careers in, in the old skills, bricklaying, uh, uh, carpentry. Uh, I think most of our home builders were here to tell you they'd hire somebody today if they're an electrician in right. the old skills. But in healthcare, in robotics, in computers. You know, my family has a manufacturing business, and I will tell you the people who know how to program our machines, repair our machines, fix our machines, fix our tool and die, yeah. make a really, really good living. And, and those are the those are the skills that people can have with if they don't want to be an academic, if yeah. they don't want to read well, I, Shakespeare. I, I don't know. Everybody does want to do that. I'm an example of that. So I decided that I didn't want to do four years of college. Mm-hmm. I had a different set of needs as far as education was concerned. I wanted to do radio. You only really need a two-year degree to do radio. So I went to a two-year college in Indiana, actually, uh-huh. uh, and, you know, took a small amount of debt to do that. But, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean— you don't have to be a professor of rocket science to go to college anymore. There, there are different colleges for different needs out there. So, well, a lot of the European yeah. systems don't even encourage people. In Switzerland, which is one of the higher educated countries in the world, about 20% of their people go to four-year degrees. Huh. Another 65 to 70% do yeah. apprenticeships. You and that degrees that apply to a workforce, too. Well, they even do them for, like, bank yeah. presidents and accountants and stuff like that. So they wouldn't go to get an accounting degree at a four-year university. They would go work for an accounting firm and take classes. But part of their education and is working, and the companies participate. We're not going to go there. That's just not our culture. Right. That goes back to the old guild system. But somebody that's a bank president in Switzerland, I mean, running big banks, mm-hmm. you know, you always hear about the Swiss banks, more, more than likely – apprenticeship in a bank and learn their kind of co-opt and took some classes, but didn't get a four year finance degree at a, an equivalent to a four year university. Huh? Well, I think we have a great education system. It's just finding ways to prioritize what you want to do in that and then well, how much and getting people cost. into it and, and people yeah. understanding it. And, and that's what we, uh, so I'm working with a lady named Susan Davis, who is a uh, San Diego and the ones I'm bringing up people, you don't know who they are, but Susan Bonamici from Portland is not a Republican. She's not even a moderate Democrat, yeah. but we have these common things that we can work on. Su- Susan Davis out of San Diego, whose husband's from, from Louisville, so she has some Kentucky connection, but are yeah. working on apprenticeship programs to try to in- 
to make sure if you do. So here's a problem in Switzerland. If you go through an apprenticeship program, it's recognized. And, of course, it's a small country. It's smaller right. than Kentucky, I think, in population, if not close to it, that you, it's recognized. So, but what if you do an apprenticeship, you go work for Trace Diecast, you become a tool and die maker, and then all of a sudden you want to, say, move to Detroit to work for a tool and die company there. They say, well, we don't know how value that credential is because you got it through a business. And so what we want to do is come up with a national standard that a company like Trace Diecast can buy into so that if one of our people – become a tool and die maker with this credential, then it's universal. Now, for a business like Trace, you would say, well, that makes your person more marketable to somebody other than you, and you've invested in them, but that's just part of it. You know, if somebody can move to, say, Detroit to work for a big three automotive company with that that credential, and that credential means they can earn, you know, a third more money, then more power to them. Okay, uh, another, uh, sorry, it's the state of... It's the State of the State segment with Congressman Brett Guthrie today, uh, powered by our friends at United Producers. So let's talk about the Empower Care Act. Uh, I got a, a, a press release from, from Lauren, and she said that you might want to talk about that. What's that all about? Well, what we're trying to do is have people that can stay at home uh, with uh, Medicaid. So it's Medicaid for it's Medic, stay-at-home Medicaid. And so what the, the issue we have, Medicaid pays for certain people to be in institutional settings. And so what we want to say is, what if you don't need to be in an institutional setting? So here's the thing is that it's extremely expensive to put somebody in an institutional setting. Right. So we'll pay the state, the federal government through the state will pay for them to be in an institution. If the alternative is for them to be at home, which most people would prefer to be at home, right. most of their family caregivers would prefer for them to be home. It's easier if you ever sat around a hospital with a sick person, mm-hmm. with a sick relative, you understand it's just better for the family to be home. And so it allows them, so it allows some of the money to follow. It's called, essentially, Medicaid follows the person. Mm-hmm. So so current system is your institutional setting or you get nothing. So families say, well, we can't really afford to keep them at home because they have needs. Right. So we have to put them in an institution. So it's cheaper for the State it just makes sense. One of these things that makes sense. Right. It's cheaper for the state, and it and people can choose to stay at home. That's what yeah. that and the president signed and that yesterday. Choices. Yeah, more, the president more. actually signed that yesterday into law. Oh, that is yeah. awesome! Outstanding. All right. Well, let's uh, let's say folks want to get a hold of you. You know, uh, I, I feel like nowadays there's not as big a connection with uh, your local congressmen or representatives. Uh, than there used to be. So if they want to reach out to you, tell them how they can reach well, you. The best way is through the social media, through the web. Yeah. web. So our um, you can go Google them, Brett Guthrie. It's, if you have the uh, house.gov site, that's our official site that, yeah. uh, that people can email. It's easier to do that. If you mail to us, if you send mail to Washington, D.C., it actually goes through an anthrax clearing center. So it can take two to yeah. three weeks for us to get a piece of mail. I had somebody... Um, send a blast on social media, how it was very unresponsive, whatever, to them. And we try to be resentful. So I knew the person. I don't know why in the world he did it, but he well, did this, it. This, this so I called him. Well, I called him, and they said, well, I sent you a letter. I haven't heard anything. Yeah. And like three days after I called him back, we got the letter. So right. it's, it's, it's better to, to email or call our office. Uh, yeah. We have a local office as well here in Bowling Green. We have local offices throughout. But the best is to, to Google Brett Guthrie or go to brettguthrie.com. And uh, Twitter. You can tweet. But – the best way is that it goes through our website. You can email right into us, and we, right. we get those and respond to them. 
Okay, so finally, we always end the segment with what's on your mind. So yeah. what's on your mind right now? Well, one of the big the thing that we absolutely have to address, and, and I talked to the president before we left, and about our budget deficit. Yeah. The budget deficit is now going to be approaching a trillion dollars this year, the national debt. Uh, I did vote to make sure we funded our military. We, The president, when I was talking to him, you know, I'm military background, and he said that, you know, we really have to finish. The military really dropped in its power during the last administration. And mm-hmm. so we really need to complete the funding, and I'm going to make sure that we have things in place as we move forward to make sure we get our budget under control. And does that require more spending on the military? Well, it did require more spending on the military. Yeah. And so when you talked about when people were talking about the president's spending bill that he negotiated with Speaker Pelosi, you know, two thirds of all the increased money was was active duty military, mm-hmm. the right equipment, the right airplanes. We had, you know, people I've had people say, call me. My child's a pilot for so and so. And they say they, they have to borrow parts off a spare airplane so they can fly their airplane. That's where we got. That's where we were. Yeah. And some people would say, well, we need to cut the military. We don't need to have our military all over the world. And that's a fair debate to have to say, where do we actually need to be? What are we willing to pay for? Where do we want them? But not while our men and women are overseas. Right. So if, because what happens is if you shrink the size of the military, but you don't shrink the mission, uh-huh. then you have the same men and women yeah. doing it over and over and over again. And we have our men and women you know, at the reserves, who act to do that are being deployed and redeployed and redeployed away from their families. So we need to give the right size military to the mission we asked them to do. Right. The other, so two thirds of it was military spending. The other was VA veterans. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my colleagues voted to for the National Defense Act to spend money on the military. A lot of my colleagues voted to in a separate bill to make sure the VA was adequately funded, that our veterans are taken care of. And then when the bills were put together, ended up voting against it because it was going to pass anyway. But I felt obligated to our veterans and our men and women serving overseas. It doesn't take away from the fact that our budget deficit is out of control. Most of it, as we talk about, is through healthcare spending. Right. And so I actually had a proposal. So we did pass out of the House three or four years ago, three years ago, I guess, the repeal and replace of Obamacare. The House did pass it. I wrote a specific proposal in there that would have saved over $800 billion over 10 years in Medicaid and still ensured that we had a, a, a an adequate Medicaid system that funded people for the, at the most, at the lowest needs of our, of our right. society that we want to make sure they have health care. So my, uh, I have an accomplishment in truly reforming an entitlement spending. It missed the Senate by one vote, criticized by a lot of senators, but it missed the Senate by the overall package by, by one vote. I hope that president Trump said he's going to revitalize that after the election and, and get our spending under control so we can have a better future for our children. I think regardless of any circumstance, back to the military thing, it doesn't matter if you're $80 trillion in debt. The military needs full support. Well, that, well you, could, you could send every man and woman home in uniform today, yeah. and you would still have a budget deficit. Yeah. And so that's you can't do it on their backs. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I supported what the president – I thought the president negotiated as good a deal as he could with Speaker Pelosi, and, uh, and he called and personally asked that I support it. And so I felt the obligation to the military to do so. But it doesn't take away from the fact that the criticism of the president, the, you know, Republicans criticized the president for that deal. And the, the fair criticism was we're not dealing with our budget deficit overall. But I think that's a different ledger that we have to get our, hand, our hands on. And the, the budget deficit is a long-term problem. There's no question about that. But and it's going to sh- take, you can't solve it in one year. I right. mean, if we were to cut a trillion dollars this year, it would devastate people in Social Security. 
and Medicare. Yeah. And a lot of people paid into Social Security and Medicare expecting that to be there. So we have to fix it over a generation, but we need to make, we're not making steps to do it. Right. The president said he was going to move forward after we talked about the, the specific spending bill that he proposed. I guess it was end of July before we broke for August. Yeah. And so uh, I'm looking forward for him leading on that issue. You may have already touched on this, but maybe I missed it. So, you know, I was saying uh, it's going to be a long-term problem to deal with the deficit. In the short term, what what can you do to help start cutting that down that, that you've thought? Well, about? I've already talked about Medi- I think Medicaid is the first and foremost place to move forward where we right. can still protect the vulnerable. Mine was pretty simple. Mine was pretty simple. My proposal was take all the Medicaid that people get today. Right. So every, so every, the billion dollars or so that Kentucky gets today from the federal government and let it grow at inflation. So it wasn't cutting anything. So if you take the projections over the next 10 years of Medicaid spending and you say every state gets what they get today. Now we did change. We said that the expanded Medicaid that came under Obamacare, everybody that's on it can stay on it. We're not going to put more people on it because that's the thing that's going on in Frankfurt right now. Mm-hmm. That, but if you say every state gets what they get plus medical inflation, we save over eight hundred billion dollars over the next. It's a lot years. of money. <laughs> a lot of money. So that shows what the just the growth in healthcare spending is going to be if we don't get a handle on it. Right. And so that that's what we're moving moving forward. But you know what's happening with the governor is that you're, when they first passed Obamacare, the first five years of Medicaid expansion. The federal government paid 100%. So when Governor Bevin came into office, that started going away, where the federal government pays 90. But 10% of that bill is about $300 million. So when Governor Brashear expanded Medicaid, the state didn't have to come up with a penny. But Governor Brashear came into office, now the state has to come up with $300 million. And so when the— Governor Bevin, you mean? Governor Bevin, I'm sorry. Yeah, when Governor okay. Bevin <laughs> came, what did I say, Governor Brashear? Yeah. When Governor Bevin came, when Governor Brashear yeah. expanded Medicaid, the state didn't have to put a penny into it. When Governor Bevin came into office, the he and the General Assembly had to come up with $300 million to cover that bill. Hmm. And so not only that, they're dealing with the pensions. And so yeah. as a citizen, we're talking about affordability, affordability for colleges. That's money that's not going to Western. You know, that's money that's not going into our school system. Because it's being paid for these programs that we need to get a handle on. Interesting. Fascinating stuff. Congressman Guthrie, always a pleasure to have you It's always great to be here. We'll we'll make sure we do this more often. Yeah, I hope to have you in more often for sure. Absolutely. Okay. And, of course, we'll have this on our podcast uh, very, very soon. Look at WGGC.com for more information there. Thank you for being a part of State of the State. Thanks for having me here. All right. The Big Rick Podcast. The best of the biggest interviews from Big Rick in the Morning on iHeartRadio, Apple, or Google Podcasts, or anywhere podcasts are heard. See more info now at onairwithrick.com. Thanks for listening to The Big Rick Podcast. Remember to subscribe on iHeartRadio, Apple, or Google Podcasts, or anywhere podcasts are heard. See exclusive video interviews and content now with the Big Rick in the Morning YouTube channel. Subscribe now at onairwithrick.com.